How sick are you of uncertainty right now? This pandemic that we all hoped would just be a short-lived thing, maybe by September we'd be over it and things would be more or less back to normality. It just seems to be dragging on indefinitely and everything that we face now in life is shrouded with that dreaded word, uncertainty. How sick are you of every plan you have to make always has to end with the phrase, oh, weather dependent, of course. Or every time you refresh your news app, just that little, maybe little, maybe big, but all of us, that sense of dread that there's going to be something there that just turns the table on our life yet again. Or I was chatting with Hannah the other day and she was saying she was trying to cram in as many play dates as possible with our two young boys and some other people because she just doesn't know when things might change and she won't be able to do that. It feels like every single part of our life at the moment has a big question mark over it. Can I go on holiday this spring? What's the economy going to look like in five years? Are we going out of a pandemic or are we going into a pandemic? Will I have lectures in person next term? Do I need to stockpile on toilet paper? Will I be able to hug my granddaughter soon? Will my child be okay after being out of school for so long? Seriously though, do I need to stockpile toilet paper or not? Our whole life, I mean, uncertainty is just the water that we find ourselves swimming in. And this is, this is a global phenomenon that only seems to be on the increase. Since September, so just the last two weeks, Google searches for the word uncertainty are at a 15-year global high. That as we enter the seventh month of this pandemic with no end in sight, the cry of this world is everything ahead looks so uncertain. And there's just something that is is so jarring for all of us of of losing something that we have so taken for granted. Something like when I go to Tesco, will someone be able to see my face and see my smile? Or when I turn up to university as a fresher, will I be able to, you know, talk to people, meet people, socialize, all of those things, those kind of things that we have so so taken for granted, we've never even thought to question, so certain are they to us, that when they go away, it shakes us. And it then leads us to asking questions like, well, what's going to be next to go? Is there anything in my future that I can be sure of? Is there anything that I can know is definitely going to happen? And it's in this atmosphere, this air that all of us are breathing and can't get away from, that we are going to approach this new autumn teaching series that we're going to be in as we look into the book of Revelation. And we're going to be doing a fairly specific study in Revelation, if you like, that we're going to be looking at particular parts of the book in a particular way. And we're calling the series A Certain Future. And it's going to be eight, eight Sundays long. So um, most of the Sundays until Christmas will be looking in this series with the specific idea of we want to look ahead to our future together. And my hope is that we will ground ourselves, we'll root our feet in the certainty of the future that we have to look forward to in Christ Jesus. We'll look at how we know history is going to play itself out, particularly going to be looking at how the end of all things, how the story is going to end, how we can have certainty in what that looks like and what follows on 
after it. Although at the moment we find ourselves as a bit of a kind of timeless, directionless, maybe even hopeless people in a bit of a fog that actually we are a people that are progressing together towards a very definite end point, a final destination that we can be absolutely certain of. And so that's kind of the broad aim of this series, but also in mind is I just want us as a church to get more comfortable and familiar with the book of Revelation. I know that it's a book that many people find confusing, maybe even intimidating with think, I am not going near that, it is too weird. Well, I want us to, to maybe kind of just demystify it a little bit, get to grips with it and give us a sense of confidence as that we can actually read it on our own and we don't have to be intimidated by it. And so this week, my aim is I want to, to introduce us to the book of Revelation. I want to familiarise us with, with some of how it works and what it looks like. Maybe give us a few keys to being able to interpret it for ourselves, And then next week, we'll get into the main body of the teaching for this series. I hope that sounds all right. If it doesn't sound all right, then I'm afraid that is what we're doing. So you've, we've all got to get on board with it. So if, as with our desire for looking ahead to our, our certain future together we turn to the book of Revelation because this book is the place where we find the clearest picture in all of scripture about what the end of all things will look like and what the eternal future of, of this creation and the whole of the cosmos looks like. And it tells us what we as followers of Jesus have to look forward to as the fullness of time unravels. And yet before we, we get into Revelation, I just want to deal with a, a, a common misconception that although it does go into, in some places, quite extraordinary levels of detail as to what some of these things will look like, what it doesn't do is it doesn't give us a step-by-step, this is going to happen, then this is going to happen, then this is going to happen, then this is going to happen, and then the end will come such that we might be able to construct an incredibly accurate timeline of well we can see it coming because of these events that have happened in the world no 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 the 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 testimony consistent witness of the new testament is that we won't know when things are going to happen and when all of this is going to unravel we're not told under what circumstances the end will come and it happens a number of times in the New Testament that we hear this. I think clearest is the words of Jesus himself in Matthew 24. Let me just read you a little bit from it. Um, Jesus here is talking about the end times. So that is the subject that he has in mind. And in verse 36, he says, But concerning that day and hour, so concerning the time where this is going to happen, he says this, No one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the son, he's talking about himself, but the father only. He says that in verse 36, chapter 24. But, and then he, he kind of tails off the paragraph by then saying in verse 44, therefore you must also be ready for the son of man, again talking about himself, is coming at an hour that you do not expect. And again, talking about the end of all things, an hour that you do not expect. And then if that wasn't clear enough for us, he then immediately launches into a parable to explain some of this again. And he finishes it in verse 50, where he says the master, so again, talking about himself returning in the end of all things, the master of that servant, that's us, will come on a day when he, the servant, does not expect him 
and at an hour he does not know. So that for me is a fairly compelling account from Jesus that this the, the end of things happens at a time that we do not know. We're not able to predict it. It's not going to happen in a way that we can just calendar out. So it's not given to us for that purpose, the book of Revelation, but the book of Revelation is given to us that we will know that it is going to happen. That we can have a certainty of not when or how, but what our future is going to look like. That we can have this, this immovable bedrock of certainty, this cast iron guarantee that our certain future in Christ Jesus is guaranteed forever. That we have this final destination that we know is going to come about. And having this certain future, this picture of our certain future in him in our hearts is then what gives us perspective and the ability to keep going in this age as a church in a time of confusion and a time of uncertainty. And it's to a church or churches in times of uncertainty and confusion that this book of Revelation was originally written to. And I'm gonna, uh, I've asked Helena if she will read just the first four verses for us of the book of Revelation. We're gonna be in Revelation chapter one, just the first four verses. So do turn there if you've got a Bible, um, but the words are gonna appear on the screen and Helena is going to read them for us. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and to who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Thanks so much, Helena. So just, just want to keep those verses up and just look at verse four there, just the, the introduction to this book. And verse four we have, here's one of the things that I think as we get to grips with the letter of Revelation, as we get to grips with the, the book, is so important for us to keep in mind. Look what verse four says. It says, John, so the seven churches that are in Asia, and then it follows grace to you and peace, which is a classic New Testament opening of a letter. That this book, the book of Revelation in all of its glory and all of its, with everything it's got, is a letter. That yes, on the one hand, this is the book is completely unique. We can we can take the slide away now. Uh, the book is completely unique. It's full of symb symbolism and imagery and, and it engages your imagination and it transports you to a different place and it's full of things that require lots of explanation and don't make sense to us and, and it stands on its own plane in scripture's literature. That is all true. But at the same time, this isn't just something that appeared out of nowhere some ancient mystical document that just popped up out of the sea in a bottle and only to be decoded and understood by the mystics and those with, with special knowledge given to them by God. No, this is a letter. 
This is a letter grounded in history. It's, it's from a historical person to a set of historical churches. In verse 11 in Revelation chapter 1, it goes on to say exactly who this letter was written to. We, the seven historical churches listed there from a man who is historically known to us, John. In fact, John is one of the people that we know most about in the Bible. It's the same John who was one of Jesus's first disciples, the John that was in Jesus's inner circle of three. Some would say that he was even Jesus's best friend. The same John who wrote the Gospel of John, the same John who wrote the letters of 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, wrote the book, the letter of Revelation that then got sent to seven churches that we know existed. And so this is a, a document that is grounded in historical reality that we'll see a little bit more of in a minute. And it's sent to churches that were, were going through real life, that were trying to live faithful lives amidst lots and lots of challenges. They were churches that were now, by this point in history, in a majority pagan, non-Christian environment and, uh, and context. They were a church where one of the main pressures that they were facing was a lot of pressure from a non-Christian society to compromise on how they lived their faith, to just allow this and maybe don't do that and I'll maybe think life will be, be a bit easier to get along in. That was one of the major problems that they were facing and in lots of ways it looks very similar to Western life today. And they, just like us, were a group of churches facing a lot of uncertainty. This was a time in the church's life where many of the original apostles were starting to die and they were transitioning into how on earth is this church, which is now being persecuted in many, many different ways, how on earth is it ever going to survive? And so although this, these churches are separated by 2000 years and, and many miles, actually they were asking a lot of the same questions that we were and we are currently. And why does John then write them this letter, given all of these challenges that they're facing? He writes this letter to, to strengthen them, to encourage them, to help them in the faith, to help them keep going. And for us, it's exactly the same. Why has this, this book, this letter been given to us as part of God's word? It's given to us to, to help us, to strengthen us, to encourage us in our faith. It's not given to us to try and intimidate us, not given to us to try and confuse us, not given to us so that only a few of the advanced Christians, those that have really made it in the faith, will be able to understand things that some of the novices won't. No, get this, the book of Revelation is given to us to be helpful to us, to actually strengthen us in our faith. It's to be helpful to all of us, for all of us to get hold of as we seek to live our life of faith. Sometimes when I get some flat pack furniture from, um, from Ikea, I look at the instructions and I start to think my initial take when I look at them is, these look like they are purpose built to try and confuse me and stop me from building the furniture that I have just purchased. And I have to then check myself before I get too frustrated and just completely give up to actually think, no, like, the, the, there is no reason the designer would do that. There's no reason he would give me a set of instructions that makes them it, this harder. That is not in his, the interest of the designer in any way. This must be given to try and help me. 
and lead me along and, and to hold my hand through things, even though on first view it might not appear that way. And in a similar way, I think the book of Revelation is for us, that we can look at it in first view and just maybe get frustrated or confused and be like, this is not here to help me. This is not helpful. But actually, sometimes I think we just have to choose and think, actually, no, no, no. Just remember, this is, this is scripture given to us. It's, it is here to help us. And that can maybe help us persevere with it just a little bit more. And you'll be pleased to hear that the book of Revelation is actually far more divinely inspired than the instructions of a flat pack desk from Ikea. So we're on much, much greater ground with this book. And so then a very good question to ask at this point, which I know you're asking, I can see you all looking at me and saying, Duncan, but why then does it have to be so confusing on first read? And there's three quick reasons that I'd like to give for that. Firstly is context. So in Revelation chapter one, verse nine, we read that, uh, again, just to root it a little bit more in the reality of when this was written, John is writing from an island called Patmos. And this island is a tiny, tiny little island in, uh, in the sea, and as islands tend to be. And the, the, he's writing from this island because he has been arrested and exiled there by the Romans. The life of the church is such that, um, that they, are starting to get to a size and be influential enough that the authorities are clamping down on them and want to stop them growing. And so John has been arrested precisely for his reason, for his involvement and influence in that. And so because he's essentially in prison on this island, you think John is now trying to write letters to the mainland churches. Any letter that he sends out is going to be vetted by the Roman guards. They're not going to let anything go through. They are going to look at the letters that he's sending out and think, are we okay with this going out? And so he can't just write exactly what he was teaching that got him arrested. That's no way that will pass through. But if John can, if you like, code it in a way that to the Roman guards, they read it. And to them, it just looks like the ramblings of a madman who's gone over the edge because of the isolation in, in Patmos. But to his readers, to his readers, it makes sense. To his readers, it, it, it's speaking their language. Then they'll let that through and it can have the desired uh, impact that John wants it to have. And that leads on to the second reason. So first reason, context. Second reason why it's written like this is simply that this kind of literature, this style of writing was far more familiar, particularly to the Jewish audience of that day, than it is to us. We just don't read books that look like Revelation. We're not used to this kind of, the kind of language and imagery it uses, but the Jews would have been super familiar with it. It was part of their culture. They read books like this all the time. And the, Reve the book of Revelation is absolutely chock full of Old Testament references. 676 references to the Old Testament just in the 22 chapters of Revelation. If that sounds like a lot, it's because it is a lot. That is an average of one and a half references in each verse to the Old Testament, primarily drawing on books like Daniel, books like Ezekiel, books like Zechariah, which are very similar kind of language, but the Jewish audience would have been, it would have been like the second nature, second language to them. They would have understood it. And the beautiful thing is that the book of Revelation, it takes those imageries from the prophecies of, of the Old Testament and it develops them and brings them together and, and almost starts to act as a, as a capstone on them. The culmination, the, a clearer, high definition picture of these prophecies from of old. That while in, in, on one hand, the book of Revelation, it does stand on its own, at the same time, it is really just the continuation of all that was promised before. 
that the author, God, he has, he has spoken these things into being. And now he's just bringing this clearer picture as time goes on, that this plan was always how it was meant to be. We're still right on track. The end is coming. I just find that super encouraging that it doesn't stand on its own. It's a building on and a completion of all that went before it. So those are the first two reasons. Finally, the third reason that it looks like this is that John is trying to portray some of the most vivid, deep, rich things of God and the spiritual realities of all that is going on, the darkest and deepest mysteries of the cosmos. Could you imagine that being the case, if you then read it and thought, these are the deepest things that, that, that possibly exist, and you read it and you just thought, yeah, that sort of makes sense, or is that it? Isn't it right that given what the, the type of thing that we're engaging with, isn't it right that it bends our minds, it, it challenges our senses, it breaks our logic, that actually the only way that things like this could be communicated in any way would just be a series of images and metaphors that don't seem to work together but as you start to get to grips they kind of piece together just to give you a little taste a little glimpse of oh that and I, I can I can get hold of it just a bit more and so it's at, at both times fascinating to us and frustrating it's fascinating because it actually it gives us a glimpse into things that expressed in plain language we could never get to grips with. But frustrating all at the same time because while it gives us a taste, it also I think exposes our limitations as, as humans that we can't fully grasp, we can't get to grips fully with that which we would love to. And actually I think creates within us a sense of longing of, oh God, I just want to, I want to know more. I want to understand in greater detail. I want the end of all things to come. And as we look to the future, we are going to be focusing primarily on the end of the book of Revelation. And that might not be what you expect. But the majority of the book of Revelation, if you've come across it before, you, you, you might have heard different things. But the, the majority of the book of Revelation is not about the future. The majority of the book of Revelation is descriptive of what is going on now in this age, an age that we call the age of the church or the age of the spirit, the timeline between Jesus's resurrection from the dead and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit and the time where Jesus Christ returns again. Most of the book of the Revelation of Revelation talks about that time and so is descriptive of, of right now, if you like. And one of the most helpful things, this is just such a helpful key that I've found of understanding the book of Revelation is, because you think well, the, the, the majority is quite long. How is it just talking about right now? Chapter four, all the way through to the end, chapter 22, is a series of visions that Jesus Christ has given to John to then pass on to the churches. And what we see there is, is it is not a timeline, a continuous timeline of events. So we don't have the things happening in chapter six are then followed by the things that happen in chapter seven. And then once they're all done, the things that happen in chapter eight will then happen. I think this is one of the most helpful things to have in mind as we read the book, that the order that we read things in the book of Revelation is the order 
that John saw the visions, not necessarily the order in which the events will take place. Does that make sense? I can't hear you, so I'm just gonna assume you're nodding. That he, these are the order that he's seen the visions, not necessarily the order that the events will happen. And actually where Revelation can start to get really confusing is where you think it's just a chronological sequence of these are the things that are gonna happen. Classic example, chapter six. We read that there is a giant earthquake in chapter six that cr causes creation to be rolled up like a scroll. It sounds very much like the end of all things. Then you get to chapter 16 and you think, it seems like there has been a great Humpty Dumpty act where everything has just been put back together because then there is another giant earthquake that seems to be the end of all things. You think, how has that happened twice? Actually, that is not meant to confuse us. That is meant to serve as a helpful marker, if you like, that, oh, here's two visions that both culminate in this exact same event of there being an earthquake that is that seems to be the end of all things. So that's actually describing the same series of events, but just from a slightly different angle, slightly different emphasis, slightly different perspective. And so chapters four, all the way through to 17, are actually a series of telling and retelling of things, the spiritual realities that are characteristic of the age that we are currently living in now from a number of different perspectives, a number of different retellings of the same, the same kind of events or the same kind of things that are going on. And then it's not until chapter 18 through to 22 that the book starts to go into a bit of detail into what the, the end of all things is really going to look like. And that is where we are going to be spending our time. That's where our focus will be, chapters 18 through to 22. And what we're going to see there in, in 18 through to 20 is, again, it will just be a, a, the same series of events, roughly, but just from a number of different lenses, a number of different perspectives, where in 18, 19, 20, we are going to be confronted with the reality of the, the spiritual forces that are at play. They're invisible, but they are so real and so powerful that underpin all of the evil that we see in this world. And we're going to see them exposed for what they really are. We're going to see them humiliated and facing their final reckoning. And we will see them face their final reckoning at the, the, in this, this marvellous and wonderful picture of Jesus Christ coming forth in chapter 19. They're going to face their reckoning at the hands of the triumphant King Jesus, who strides forward on a white horse in a way that we have never seen him before in Scripture, wielding a sword, a sword of justice. And we live in our, our time right now in a time of it was just impossible to uh, to miss and to not see the, the rife injustices that are at play, whether you look at home or abroad, whether you're looking at the, the individual level or whether you're looking at the systemic level, injustice is, is rife in our creation. It leads us often, many of us, to, to asking the question of where is the righteousness? Where is justice? If God is good, where is he in all of this? And the book of Revelation, as we will see, has a deep concern for the issue of cosmic justice being meted out. And 
while it, it won't answer all of the questions that we have for today and all of the specifics and the detail of injustice that we might confront, what it does do is it consistently points us forward to a great day, a great day that is coming where, where Jesus Christ will, will yield, uh, wield the, the hammer of justice against his enemies, where these evil forces will have to give an account and be held accountable for the evil deeds that they have done and they will face final judgment and they will be put under the feet of the good and righteous King Jesus. That is what we will see come about and we will see that those have been enslaved and, uh, and, and oppressed by these evil forces will be liberated by their king and given the dignity and the worth and the honour that Jesus wants to give them. It's, it's exhilarating stuff that we will see and it will, it will cause our hearts, I hope, to worship as we get, get into it. And then with the powers under Jesus's feet after chapter 20, we'll move into chapters 21 where as these powers are, are no longer able to operate, goodness, beauty will finally have space to breathe. With darkness done away with, light will just shine forth and we will get a glimpse of all that is to come when evil has been dealt with. The inheritance that we have to look forward to, the bringing in of the, the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and the new earth that are to be our eternal dwelling place, our future home. And we are going to have the joy together of just camping out in the biblical imagery of what forever looks like with Jesus Christ. We're going to get to engage and indulge our imagination of what it will look like, what it will smell like, what it will feel like to be there. What it looks like when there is just, there is no evil. There is no darkness. There's no black stain on things. And it is just unadulterated good news. It's going to be glorious. I can't wait. We will get into it as we go on. But as much as all of those things is very much the focus of, of our time, Revelation's centre is not about where we're going, but rather it is who we are going there with. And actually, you can't understand the book of Revelation without understanding the first five words of the book that we looked at before. This is very much the headline of the book. Thanks, Alex. He's just brought it up for us. We can see it there. The whole of the book summed up right now. This is not like a headline that we see these days on clickbait, where it's just like it doesn't actually tell you anything about the article whatsoever. It just gets you to try and click on it. This sums up the whole of Revelation in one moment. The revelation of Jesus Christ. John here sets his stool out for the whole book early on. Actually, in the Greek, it's not five words, it's just three words. He just says, Revelation, Jesus Christ. And what is at play here is a bit of a double meaning, an intentional ambiguity. That on the one hand, and most obviously what he's saying is, this is a revelation from Jesus Christ. But that's, that makes the most sense as you flow through the book. It is a series of visions given to John to then pass on to the churches. A revelation that has come from Jesus to John to the churches. But also at play 
just about every scholar commentator that I read says this, is that this is not just a revelation from Jesus Christ, but a revelation of Jesus Christ. That at once Jesus is, he's the revealer, but he's also the revealed. He's the, the sender of the book, but he's also the centre of the book. And this is the most essential key that we have. That as we look to set sail on the choppy waters of the book of Revelation, this is the one thing that we must keep in mind at all times. That this is a book about Jesus Christ. That this is not primarily a book about beasts and trumpets and elders and dragons and timelines and, and jewels. This is a book about Jesus. And you think about you think about John's situation that he finds himself in. Exiled, imprisoned for his faith. And you think Jesus is about to speak to him. What does John need to hear? What does he most need from Jesus at this time? You think maybe John would need some kind of crushing of the an immediate crushing of the Roman Empire. To, that he would be miraculously liberated from his imprisonment so that he can get on with the good work of, of building churches and spreading the gospel. Or maybe what John would most need to hear at this point would be some kind of a personal encouragement from this man that's, that's walked so faithfully and known Jesus so deeply. Maybe what John needs to hear is something just like, John, you've done a great job. Or you're on the right path. Keep going, John. But no, what does Jesus give to John? Just a greater, more vivid picture of who he really is. And again, we think about the churches facing such dark times, feeling so confused about things, feeling potentially starting to feel quite hopeless about everything, and why, wondering why is everything as it is? What do they most need from Jesus at this time? If, if, if a letter's coming to them from Jesus's own hand, essentially, what do they need to hear? Maybe they need some kind of really deeply practical and like strategic plan that will help them navigate this time together. Or maybe they just need a bit of, a bit of insight into exactly why these situation and circumstances are carrying on like they are. But again, what does Jesus give them? He doesn't give them any of those things. He gives them a deeper revelation of who he really is, that they might see him. And again, for us, that as we find ourselves in this season as churches, and we might think there's so much that we need from you, Jesus, so much we need to hear, so much we need you to communicate. We might think, well, Jesus, we need to know when this virus is going to end or, or, or why have you made this come about? Or at least tell us what is going on in the heavenly realm that, so we could understand it. Tell us a bit of your master plan here, Jesus. Where does coronavirus fit right into this whole thing? Now, these are all good questions. And in fact, to the book of Revelation, it does address some of those things to some extent. But often what we think we need from God is is a bit off from what we really need from him and what he knows we really need.
that for us in a similar way, Jesus would say, I know all of those things. They're important. But what you really need is to see me. What you really need is to behold me in ways you've never seen me, to get to grips with the fullness of my person, to engage with and behold my beauty. That's what you need. It's counterintuitive to us, but that's the message of the book of Revelation. That for all of its complexity, it's actually in some ways astonishingly simple. That it is just unashamedly a book that shows us and tells us who Jesus is. That the invitation of Revelation, it's not just to, to grow in knowledge, not just to gain a deeper understanding, uh, understanding, but the book of Revelation, the invitation, is an invitation to encounter with Jesus. An invitation to see him and behold him in ways that we see nowhere else in scripture to behold him in, in ways that, uh, that, that challenge us and, and maybe we don't expect from him, but are true revelations of him. See him as he truly is and see him as he one day will be. And as we go through the series, we'll see that actually there is no greater gift to us. There is no higher purpose in life. There is no more fulfilling ambition than to see Jesus, see God himself, in the person of Jesus Christ. It's what we're made for. It's what we're designed for. And it's where we're headed. Just to bring us into the, the end of the book, Revelation chapter 22, talking about where we are headed with him, it says, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb, that's, that's Jesus, will be in it. And his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. They will see his face. That is how it describes where we're going, what our eternal future with God looks like, that we will see him, that we will finally do and engage with and experience what we were made for, that we would see God himself. And that's why this book of Revelation is such a gift for us. It's why it's for everyone. That it is through the book of Revelation that we get to move more and more into this place. While we are a people of waiting for this to come about, we're also a people who can experience him and see him now. And it's through the book of Revelation that we see him as he truly is and will one day be. It draws us deeper into our relationship with him now and it draws us deeper into the future joy that we have with him. And so as we see him, we'll become a people of greater certainty. We will ground our feet ever more in who he is, which will root us more and more in where we are going with him. And so even though we are swimming very much in waters of uncertainty and day to day where things are happening, we don't really know what's going on and what we can count on. This series is going to embolden us with a, a resilience about our future. We don't know all of the details. We still have a lot of fog in our immediate view, but we'll see a beacon of light shining that we know will never go out. So we're going to finish now by celebrating this very fact that Jesus has been revealed to us. We, we can see him. We can know him now. We may not yet see him fully in all of his glory, but we do know him truly and we can get a greater picture as we get into this series together.